this, that Francis Schaeffer predicted that American culture and unfortunately the church would eventually be characterized by the goals of personal peace and personal affluence. I believe Francis Schaeffer was absolutely correct. And what he wrote 25 years ago has already come to pass and will continue to come to pass within our culture. When I look out at the church today and look out at Christianity, I see something that is not unlike the Israel of old. So many Christians seem to be increasingly preoccupied with their own possessions and their own careers. People of our culture remind me of Charles Dickens' great allegory of conversion, The Christmas Carol. When Jacob Marley's ghost, chained with his cash boxes and ledger and keys and property deeds, says to Scrooge, I wear the chains I forged in life. I made them link by link and yard by yard. I girded on my own free will. In Hosea chapter 8 and verse 4, Hosea gives Israel these words. With their silver and their gold, they made idols for their own destruction. And what Hosea described here, I believe, has direct application to our culture, to us as Christians, and to individuals. Now, how can Israel's plight help us to define the challenge we face today? And I want to try to set this context by, first of all, really very, very rapidly moving you through what Christ had to say would come to pass with Israel and then what actually did come to pass in both, uh, Ju in both uh, Judah and also in Israel. So stick with me. Don't turn to these scriptures, but I just want to kind of bring you through them real fast so you can see the similarities of that period of time with what we have today. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, as the people came into the land, Moses gave them an admonition and also made a prediction. And in chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, he tells the children of Israel not to forget their roots. Their roots were in the wilderness. They'd had tough times. They owed, they owned nothing but the clothes on their backs. They were forced to totally depend upon God. In verses 3 to 6, they learned that they did not live by bread alone, but by His Word. They were totally dependent upon God and were not self-sufficient in any way. In verses 7 to 9, Moses contrasts the severity of the wilderness with the prosperity of Canaan. And when I kind of look at the two areas, it seems to me that what we had in the church in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s was kind of the way the children of Israel were prior to entering the land. The church in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s were kind of on the outskirts. It was not wealthy. It still looked on itself as being outside the cultural mainstream. And there was a certain excitement about the Lord's return. Moses goes on to say in verses 10 to 18 that, that there were inherent dangers of blessing and prosperity. He predicted that it would be very easy for the children of Israel to forget what God had done for them. It would be difficult for the children of Israel to remain humble. They would convince themselves that it was really their own power and their own strength and their own ability that had produced all their successes. And then in verses 19 and 20, he reads or he gives to the, to the Israelites a warning as to what would happen if they fell into this latter pattern. Well, let's see what happened. 
When one turns to Isaiah chapter 1, we see that the corruption had totally infiltrated the southern kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 11, we see that the worship had been corrupted. We see in Isaiah 5, 8 that, it, that, there, was, that there was the idolatry of possessions, an idolatry of self-indulgence. And beginning in verse 20 of chapter 5, Isaiah lists a number of woes that were to come to pass because of what they had done. He calls them liars. He calls them perverts of morality. He says that they'd become prideful in verse 21. They'd become arrogant. They'd become conceited. Verse 23, they no longer knew how to do justice. Their leadership was corrupt. And then when one turns to the northern kingdom, we look at the book of Amos. And here we see in the book of Amos that Israel's specific sin was that of exploitation of the poor and a false or fake religion. In Amos chapter 3 and verses 9 to 10, Amos talks about two evils in the lives of the people. Number one, they were careless of the oppressed who lived in their midst. And number two, they brought plunder into their homes. Now, the interesting thing about this condemnation of both the northern and southern kingdoms was this. All this took place in Judah and Israel during a period of the greatest prosperity and greatest luxury that both kingdoms had ever known. In 2 Kings chapter 14, we read that both kingdoms, or that Israel, experienced great expansion of territory. In Amos chapter 3, we find that members of the upper classes literally had houses that were made of ivory. In Amos chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, the luxurious lifestyle was predicted that it would end in judgment. In chapter 8 and verse 4 of Amos, once again, Amos points out the fact that the men were indifferent to the oppressions that their wealth brought on the suffering and the poor. In verse 6 of chapter 8, it's very interesting. You kind of have this setting where the wealthy men have gone to worship and they can't even think about anything while they're worshiping except their business. And the verse points out that they're dishonest in business. Not only that, they could hardly wait for the Sabbath to end so they could get back to the wor their worldly pursuits. And all of this was covered by a phony religiosity. And Hosea says this, With our silver and our gold, we have made idols for our own destruction. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? It's not a whole lot different from the times that we are living in today. And I want, to draw our, I want to draw our thoughts this morning to what I consider to be a number of these idols that are so subtle, yet they affect all of our lives every day because of the power of the culture as it gets our eyes off of Christ and off of His Word and onto the pursuits that make culture or make the things of culture so important to us. Look at 2 Timothy, if you will, chapter 3 and verse 2. 2 Timothy, chapter 3 and verse 2. As we move in, as we move into the end times, Paul makes a prediction. And he says this about the end times. Chapter 3 and verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. The idol 
of the self. The idol of the self. You see, we have in America today a virulent form of individualism that no longer is moderated by what sociologist Robert Bella calls the soft structures of society that deal primarily with the human motivation, i.e. the family, the church, and the school. The late Alan Bloom said this, We will be dealing with a generation, by the time we reach 2000 or the new millennium, we will be dealing with a generation who comes from a divorced home, who have divorced themselves, and who will be left in the sunset of their years with no support from their own children or an extended family. And it's really interesting to me that, what, that the divorce rate at one of the most elite Christian colleges in America today is exactly the same as the population at large. I believe also that this viral form of individualism has led to what I would call a loss of community, both at large and also within the Christian community. In German, the word for community is Gemeinschaft. And Gemeinschaft signifies, quote, the intimate, private, and exclusive living together. Community is characterized by understanding, by agreement, by cooperation, and by solidarity. And there are three main manifestations of community. It's blood, it's place, and mind. And let me explain it to you like this. Blood would be the family. Activities as a consequence of their biological proximity. Things that take place within the family. The nurturing, the caring, the building up. Secondly, community would be manifested in the place, i.e. the neighborhood, where people are related to each other through shared local concerns. And I ask you today, what is the reality of neighborhood life in America? Is there such a thing as neighborhood life in America? Where groups of neighbors come together with shared values and are involved in the lives of those around them. And then thirdly, the manifestation of the mind. That's the idea of friendship, where people are related to each other through common interests or belief, i.e., the church. And so community takes place in all three of those areas. Blood, place, and mind. Family, neighborhood, and church. And I say to you this morning, young people, that you are moving in to a culture that is bereft of all three. It is not a pretty picture. It is not a pretty picture. Dave Maddox read to you a passage of Scripture this morning that I believe has a lot to do with this whole idea of viral individualism and how it is to be attacked and how it is to be confronted. And look with me, if you will, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25 again. It's a very, very instructive passage, especially for 21st century Americans and especially for young Americans. Luke chapter 10. 
verses 25 to 37. And you all know the confrontation. You have this, you have this rich young ruler that comes to our Lord. He's prideful. He's pompous. He believes he has all the right answers. The rich, the rich, young, the rich young lawyer comes before the Lord. And the Lord responds with a very interesting question. He says, and who is your neighbor? And it's very interesting as one reads through the text, the answer is very, very clear. Our neighbor is anyone whose paths we cross that cannot help themselves. Did you hear that? A neighbor is anyone whose paths we, whose path we cross who cannot help themselves. What's very, very interesting about this parallel is, what, is once again so often when Christ teaches, he reverses everything. Rather than having a Jew come down and find a Samaritan in the ditch, he has an outcast Samaritan come down who finds a Jew in the ditch. Now this man was in distress, wasn't he? And it was through no fault of his own. He had been minding his own business. He'd been going down the road to Jericho and he was attacked by thieves and he was beaten and he was robbed. The man could not help himself. And it's very interesting, when we get to verse 31, we see first of all that a priest went by. And we can liken that to the clergy today, to a minister. And what does the minister do? He passes by on the other side. You know, that's very, very instructive to me. And I want you to really hear what this text says. You know, so often we preach and we teach about loving God. About how important that is. But I want you to know, when you read this verse in Luke chapter 10, you, when Christ, when Christ recites the two great commandments, He says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor is yourself. That is conjunctive. You cannot split the two. And I submit to you this morning, young people, that you do not love, you cannot love God unless you love your neighbor. And the example of that is precisely right here. We have, we have a priest. A person that basically is preaching and teaching the Torah. And he claims to love God. And where does he end up? On the other side of the road. Our Lord doesn't stop there. Next comes a Levite. Well, how can I, what would be a proper term for a Levite today? Probably somebody in a professional ministry on a church staff. Okay? A person that publicly proclaims that he loves God. And yet, what does he do? He passes on the other side of the road. It's very, very interesting that once again it is the outcast that comes to this man in need. And I want you to see something else, folks, here about what it means to love your neighbor. There's no conditions here. The Samaritan doesn't say, Well, my friend, if you will go up to Mount Gerizim with me, and worship at Mount Gerizim, where the, Samarit, where the Samaritans worship, then I'll bind you up. Then I'll help you. You see, there was no condition here. The man had a need, 
And the Samaritan met the need. And, and ob the obvious parallel here is Christ. You see, Christ was also an outcast. And Christ came unto his own. His own received him not. That's precisely what we have before us. It's a powerful, powerful parable. And a parable that basically is not understood today and is not taught very much today because the implications of it are so powerful. Prior to 1964 in the United States, before welfare became a right, back into the 19th century, the church played a major role in helping what we call the worthy poor. People that through no fault of their own desired, desired to get on their feet and to make a way in life. And the church was there and organizations were there to help. But in 1964, Welfare in this country became a right. And you know what happened? The church bowed out of that whole process. And you see what happens today in so many areas because of what has happened in the culture. The church basically says, hey, it's not my job to bind somebody up. Let the social worker do it. Let the government do it. And what has happened is is that increasingly and increasingly in these horizontal relationships throughout our culture, and I'll use a 1960s term here, the church has become irrelevant. The church has become irrelevant. The church, as Francis Schaeffer has said, has become nothing but a preaching point. And the reality of horizontal relationships does not take place within the church and outside of the church. What does it mean to love your neighbor? I won't ask you to turn to it. If you want to find out what it means to love? Go to 1 Corinthians 13. Find out how many conditions are listed in, ch in chapter 13 when it talks about love. Love is kind. Love is not puffed up. Love is not arrogant. So the first major idol then, young people, is this whole idol of loving self. One that goes right along with it, and you see that also in 2 Timothy chapter 2, chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. For men should be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy. I see a second idol there as well. That's the idol of materialism. The idol of materialism. You see, these all flow together. You see, today, for the most part, success in our culture, and really in Christian circles as well, and individually, is defined within the parameters of wealth and power. It's so obvious. I believe the impact on our culture and on the church has been absolutely devastating in this area. Ken Gangle from Dallas Seminary says that the prosperity gospel is a transfer of the yuppie lifestyle to the church. Young people, I've said this before over the years, we live in an era of jet-set Christianity. We live in the era of the Christian consumer. So often we treat the work of God as if we're just buying a product. 
And you know, the sad part about this is, is that, unfortunately, the church is no longer a community for hurting, suffering people. Church is for people that look right, dress like, dress right, talk right, and act right. Malcolm Muggeridge said years ago, you cannot have both power and love. You cannot have both power and love. They're absolutely, totally opposite. Power is all controlling, all conforming. Love is exactly the opposite. It's humble, it's giving. I picked up, I was reading the Times on Sunday. Just listen to this as it relates to materialism. As you well know, the Christian Coalition held their big rally in Washington, D.C. Last, this last weekend, and it was on C-SPAN, and I watched part of it. Just, just listen to this. If you don't think it permeates the church. This is from the Times. Here's what I see, said Tracy Feeney, as he hawked his long-distance phone service, a Christian-owned answer to AT&T. Almost anyone can look at our country and see that the morals are declining. The people see a society that will literally be horrible for their children and grandchildren. There was fear and congratulations, threat and success, Christianity and commerce, as the Capitol played host to the self-proclaimed largest gathering of grassroots pro-family activists in America this year. At the conference, you could pick up a presidential candidate, pick a presidential candidate, or order a precious feet baby, a life-size doll of a 12-week-old fetus, four for 6.95 each, or a hundred for 4.50 each. Christian Coalition golf balls went fast at three, at three for nine dollars. We the People ties were 28 dollars bought, brought to you by the by the company called Ties That Bind. It's not just a tie, it's a ministry. See where we've gone, folks? I mean, I mean, it, it is so patently evident. You know, and we sit around as if things are going to get better and better and better and better. And so often, all that we look out for as Christians is that we just want more of the same thing. We want more of what America can give us. We want more washing machines and more televisions and more cars. The idol of materialism. One last idol, and this might be one you might not have ever thought of because I never thought of it and it really made a major impact in my life when I began to understand it because it also permeates our... And it really comes top down through the culture. So I would call the idol of our work or career. The idol of our work or career. And I believe this is one of the most, this is very, very subtle. You realize today, young people, there are a great many people, both in and outside of the church, that worship their work. That worship their work. Process, and, it, and you can read this in Matthew chapter 7 about the Pharisees, that the process of worship was more important than what the sacrificial system actually meant. For many people, their career means fulfillment. It's a means of justifying their existence. It's a means of escape from family and relationships. And so often this is even manifested within the church. And let me explain it to you like this. The temptation so often, now hear me, is to put the work of God above God. Did you hear that? To put the work of God 
above God. Our will to do or achieve replaces God's will. And in most forms, this can resort to a pragmatic use of ungodly means to achieve what we think are godly ends. And so often what happens then as Christians, we confuse our own goals with what God's desires are for us. Young people, most of the time, the problems that we face personally as Christians and in the church are not caused by a direct attack from Satan, but by our own willfulness and our own disobedience. Satan gets too much credit. Usually, the problem is with our own flesh. Three idols, the idol of self, the idol of materialism, and the idol of work. How can we meet that challenge? What does the Bible have to say that will help us to, to kind of look at those pitfalls and to, and to avoid them? First of all, let me point out one that has, has helped me an awful lot, and that is to have a memory for sin. Did you hear that? To have a memory for sin. We need to understand continually what, it, what sin did to us before we were saved and recognize that we are in a continual battle with our flesh every single moment. You know, I've, I've done a lot of thinking over the past year on this particular subject. To me, one of the greatest apologi apologetics that the Scripture is true, and I want you to hear this in all sincerity, to me personally, one of the greatest apologetics that the Scripture is true is my own wretchedness when I really see myself as I am. It verifies exactly what Scripture has said. And you know, we get it, you know, it's really interesting. We're Calvinists, but we really get caught up into this holiness movement, the Arminian movement. And so the idea is, is the longer we progress, the less and less we feel we're going to sin. I'll tell you, if you have to go up and get on your knees at night and you have to think about where you sinned this day, you've got a big problem. And I've got a big problem. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're to be a living sacrifice. You ever thought about that? How in the world can you be a living sacrifice? In the Old Testament, what happened to all sacrifices? They were killed. The blood poured down the mercy seat. And yet we're called upon to be living sacrifices. And the point simply is, just as Christ gave everything to us, the answer is, in life, to give everything back to Him. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. To give everything back to Him. Just, we are to be dedicated to God, if you will. So first of all, one way... Not to fall into these, these pits of these idols is to have a memory for sin. Second, second, and I've touched on this before many times, but it, it just continues to constrain me. How much idolatry, how much idolatry, young people, would there be in our lives if we really eagerly awaited the return of Christ? if we really eagerly awaited the return of Christ. You know, you can go all the way back to Genesis 
You look at the life of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Israel. But you know what? He was always likened to a stranger. Writer of the Hebrews tells us that in chapter 11, verses 8 to 10. Amazing. Here is the greatest king of Israel, second greatest king of Israel, David, depending on how you want to look at it. The founding, really the founding of the dynasty, the founder of the dynasty. In Psalm 39, verse 12, also, David also thought of himself as a stranger and a sojourner. Hebrews tells us the same thing about Christ in chapter 13, verses 12 to 14, that he suffered outside the gate. And Peter tells us in chapter 2 and verse 1 that we, like Abraham, are aliens and strangers. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3, verses 17. Verse 17. Philippians chapter 3. Now watch this. Brethren, be not followers together of me. And mark them who walk even as ye have as ye have us for an example. I think I've got the wrong passage. Isn't that terrible? No, I'm okay. I just didn't read far enough. Alright. I want to read you the whole context. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is, is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is their shame, whose, who mind earthly things. Now watch this, gang. Verse 20. For our citizenship is where? 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 In the United States of America, where? It's in heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we... What's the next word? We look. We gaze. For the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our lowly body, that it may be fashioned like his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. You see, both Israel and the early church looked upon themselves as pilgrims, as wayfarers, as sojourners. Now, folks, here's the problem for us especially. This is a Gentile problem, okay? This is a Gentile problem. Gentiles culturally are nation builders. Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, America. Gentiles love to build empires. But you know the problem with building an empire? Building an empire takes time. Building an empire takes time. And I believe Christians have been corrupted today by a Darwinian cosmology i.e. incrementalism. We want to build the church. I don't read any place in Scripture where we build the church. Who builds the church? Who builds the church? Christ builds the church. Christ builds the church. He's the architect. He's the contractor. He's the owner. Young people, the future is not an improvement and redeeming of American culture by the church. We cannot be content with handing down our legacy to the next generation as if life is going to go on and on and on and on. It seems we're so contented with this present age.
that we've gotten confused and slipped into what I would call indifference concerning the eminency of the Lord's return. The future, young people, is not in America. It is not somehow in an incremental extension or improvement of what we have now. It is the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The future belongs to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It does not belong to America of the Christian College Coalition or, for that matter, the America of Newt Gingrich. It really doesn't. Philippians 3.20, the text I just read to you, says we are to look eagerly and we are to await. But you know what's so great about this? It allows us then to be strangers and sojourners. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5 tells us, we shall not all sleep. And my challenge to you this morning, young people, is to take that at face value. Take that at face value that some of you will be living when Christ returns. Well, we bring this to a close. How then do we keep from being consumed with the idolatry of this age? Listen. We need to travel light. We need to travel light. Looking for our blessed Savior. We're different than the Jacob Marleys of this world. Are we traveling light enough to where we can be a good neighbor? Or are we so consumed with this world system that we wouldn't even see a need if we tripped over it? You know, I have to confess to you, my generation is probably responsible more than any other generation for what's happened. Some sociologists call my generation the silent generation. It was my generation that basically said we make people happy, we make our children happy by giving them more things, by making life easier for them, by giving them a better life than what I had. And I believe that was wrong. This might sound very negative, young people, but you realize that you might be the first generation living in America that will not live as good materially as your parents. But think about that for a minute. That might not be all that bad. It might not be all that bad. The height of the Great Depression in America. Families took care of families. The church was intimately involved in the neighborhoods. The church was intimately involved in the lives of their people, meeting their physical as well as their spiritual needs. So once again, young people, take it from a person that knows. Take it from a person that has seen this develop over the past 35 or 40 years. Take it from a person that's made a lot of mistakes in this area. The need for you right now is to make a commitment to travel light so that you can be in a place where God can really use you. Maybe it's a ministry. Maybe it's in love with no conditions moving into the life of somebody on this campus that's really hurting. Not moving into their lives in the sense of holding them accountable without love. All young people, you've got to see how the two fit together. You just can't beat people over the head. You've got to really love them. 
That means you love them the way the Samaritan loved the man in the ditch and the way that, Christ, that Paul tells us to love in 1 Corinthians 13. You have your whole lives in front of you. You don't have to make these mistakes, but you do need to understand that the culture is powerful. But our God and His Spirit are more powerful. And I want to challenge you this morning while you can still make these kinds of decisions to make a commitment in your own life that you will never be so tied down by this culture that you won't be able to answer God's call. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity just to share these passages this morning. We know that life presents to us a difficult challenge, but certainly a challenge that is totally that is totally able for us that is totally able for us to meet through the power of your spirit. And Father, we confess to you that uh, so often we lose sight of these these basic issues. And I would ask once again forgiveness this morning for even the times that many, many, many times that I have failed to love you because I have not loved my neighbor. And Father, I just pray that you would help us, all of us, to be so consumed with you that we would see those around us through your eyes. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.